The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. That was President Biden speaking to CBS 60 Minutes at the Detroit Auto Show on Sunday. But last month, the Biden administration extended the public health emergency declaration for COVID through October 13th. And the White House has been unsuccessfully lobbying Congress for an additional $22.5 billion in funding for pandemic response. At the same time, more than 300 Americans are dying daily from COVID. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So is the pandemic over? Who makes that call? And what does the data tell us? We'll get into it after the break with two experts for this installment of Vaccination Nation. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the discussion by welcoming our guests. Dr. Paul Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. Dr. Offit, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Also with us is Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the New York University School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital Center. She's also a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, it's nice to have you back as well. It's great to be here. So there's been backlash against the president's remarks about the pandemic being over. I'm curious to hear how each of you reacted. Dr. Offit? Well, I think when people hear the phrase, the pandemic is over, they hear that they don't need to worry about this virus anymore. That's not true. And, and, and President Biden did say that in his follow-up sentence. Um, because it would have probably been better if he said we're moving to another phase from sort of a pandemic to a, a endemic problem. Um, that would have probably clarified things. But I think that that phrase could have been confusing. Dr. Gounder, what about you? Well, pandemic has a very specific technical meaning, which is that you essentially have an epidemic on multiple continents. And what is an epidemic? It means that you have more cases and deaths from a disease than to be expected. And we don't really know what's to be expected. We haven't seen the levels of SARS-CoV-2 transmission or COVID uh, stabilize at a predictable level uh, the way you might see perhaps with the seasonal flu. And so we're really not at the point of saying this is a Uh, the end of the pandemic yet. We got this tweet from one of you who says the disabled community knows it's not over and we know nobody cares. Dr. Gounder, when we talk about communities that are more vulnerable to this virus, what does all this mean for them? It's a great question. And I fear that we are leaving those populations behind. So who is more vulnerable at this stage? It is people who are over the age of 50 people who are immunocompromised or disabled, uh, communities of color, and people who work in professions uh, where they're more likely to be exposed and infected or live in such places. So that could be anywhere from a nursing home to being incarcerated to being in a homeless shelter or being in essential work. And those are the populations that are really dealing with the brunt of cases and, and disease and death at this stage. As I'm thinking about where we are right now, We hear of people being infected multiple times. Um, We know the vaccines never were going to prevent us from contracting COVID, but it would lessen the severity of disease. But Dr. Gounder, part of what I'm, I'm wondering is whether, as we continue to learn about this virus, we're also discounting the long term impacts that it has on people's health. 
there's still, you're, you're referring to long COVID and there's still a lot we don't know about long COVID. I, I think big picture, the vaccines are very safe, very effective. They are preventing severe disease, hospitalization and death. But there are certain subpopulations, as I mentioned, people over 50, people who are immunocompromised, where even if they are fully vaccinated and up to date with their vaccines and boosters, there still remains a risk. And vaccines are not going to be the solution to addressing that risk. You're simply not going to be able to boost people every three or four months, even targeting that at the elderly to address that remaining risk. On Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre defended the president's comment, saying President Biden was acknowledging the, quote, massive amounts of progress his administration had made on the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Is there a gap you see, Dr. Gounder, between the president's language, COVID policy and the data? Well, I think for, for one thing, people are conflating pandemic, which is really the behavior of the virus or another infectious pathogen in human populations, how it causes disease and death. They're confusing that terminology with how humans respond to that. It would be like saying cancer equals chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a response to cancer. And just as we have gotten more specific in our responses, going from uh, shelter in place orders in the beginning to now having vaccines and therapeutics and testing um, and, and other measures um, that are meant to be safety nets. So things like uh, the expansion of health insurance coverage under the form of Medicaid during the pandemic, those are more tailored, targeted responses. So, you know, to, to extend the analogy in cancer, we have better chemotherapies that are much more targeted, that cause much fewer side effects than what might, we might have had, say, 40 years ago. And so we have evolved over the course of the pandemic to have less of a social and economic impact while still preventing disease and transmission. Ultimately, when we talk about that, that label pandemic, who gets to say officially when a pandemic is over, Dr. Gounder? Well, the World Health Organization makes declarations around public health emergency of international concern. So they, they typically only declare uh, a public health emergency of international concern when it's a very concerning um, epidemic. So, for example, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa or a pandemic like COVID. And so what has the World Health Organization had to say so far? They have not yet declared an end to the public health emergency. We also got this email from Cynthia who says, I am curious as to how to evaluate when masks will no longer be necessary indoors. I seem to be the only one wearing a mask indoors these days, but who knows what the true caseload is with people not boosting, not testing, not reporting, not masking. And Cynthia, I, I hear you. We've been doing a lot of travel for the show and I have to say in many airports, I'm one of few people still masking. Dr. Often, what can you tell us? Right. I wish there was an easy answer to that question. I don't think there is. I mean, in, in Philadelphia, for example, if you uh, go into the grocery store, pretty much no one is wearing a mask. If you get on the bus, on the, which I do on the way to work, maybe one in four people are wearing a mask. In Avalon, New Jersey, where, where we occasionally, I am occasionally with my wife, no one wears a mask ever under any circumstance have I seen anyone with a mask. So I think, you know, one, one way to define the pandemic 
and I guess it is the way in which uh, Dr. or President Biden shows, which is a pandemic changes the way you live, work, and play. And, and to him, because we essentially aren't doing that anymore, um, that we've we basically grandfathered in at, at some level a certain amount of suffering and hospitalization and ICU admissions and deaths, that we're willing to do that. And I think, but and but, we but do I that. have to say, Dr. Offit, who is the we? Because I, I <laughs> when when we talk in these broad terms. There are people still masking. There are people still taking, going into great lengths to try to protect their health and the health of others. So who's actually setting this standard? The, the we is the majority of the American public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what, when President Biden says, you know, I, I think that we're, the pandemic is over, I think what he's saying is that the majority, to the majority of the American public, the pandemic is over. I mean, when you look at, for example, you know, 65,000 people attending a Philadelphia Eagles game, everybody close together and nobody wearing a mask, or this, the, the Philadelphia 76ers game where you're indoors in a playoff, you know, during this pandemic, and no one is wearing a mask. I think that tells you that, that the majority of the American public have made that decision. The, the, your, your questioner asks the question, you know, I, but I do choose to wear a mask, and so how come I'm the only one that seems to care about myself and others? And I'm just saying that this, that, that, that if you look for, here, here's another example. Before, two years before this pandemic started, before COVID entered the United States, SARS-CoV-2 entered the United States, there were about 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths from flu. I mean, we could have dramatically reduced those numbers if we did the kind of mitigation procedures that we do do with uh, with COVID, but we didn't because we accept that. And and I don't. It's a psychological issue more than a medical issue in some ways. Dr. Gounder, your thoughts? So I published, along with some of my colleagues, um, a paper in JAMA in January looking at what would be those acceptable thresholds. And if you look at historically, let's say you take a really bad flu year, what would that look like? Really bad flu year, you're talking about at least 50,000 deaths a year. Um, COVID right now, in terms of the amount of uh, deaths it would cause at the current rate, you're talking about 150,000 deaths a year. That's three times as many. So the real question is, for the American people, what level of disease and death are you willing to to face, uh, to accept, and how do we get there? And maybe this is where we are, what we are willing to accept, but we haven't had an explicit conversation about what is that threshold that would be concerning to people. Who do you think needs to drive that conversation? Is it, is it possible to have that conversation? Well, this is really a question of values. This is not a scientific question. As scientists, as public health experts, we can help uh, political leaders get to whatever the target or goal is. And we can say, okay, you know, uh, vaccination will get you this far, improving indoor air quality with HVAC system upgrades would get you this much further. But we really need political leaders, uh, community leaders, to help drive that conversation. And it's going to be a slightly different answer in every community, how they value life versus how they value economic concerns and social concerns. But those conversations had not, have not been had explicitly to really drive our uh, measures moving forward. Well, as we said, the CDC approved new COVID-19 booster shots earlier this month. The new boosters are set to target Omicron and its subvariants specifically. Dr. Offit, last time we had you on the program, it was discussed the possibility of these Omicron-specific boosters. Now that they're here, what do we need to know about them? Well, um, 
Yeah, I was actually one of two uh, voting members on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee that actually voted against this. So you probably should have the other 19 that voted for it on just to bounce this out. But but here's what I would say. I think that certainly on its face, it makes sense, right? We should target the viruses that are circulating. And it's the Omicron subvariants, BA4, BA5, that, that make up the majority of the strains that are circulating. The question is, does the bivalent vaccine, by putting the these this mRNA vaccine that contains not only the original ancestral strain, but also the BA4, BA5 strain in there, is that significantly better than just getting boosted with the ancestral strain? To date, I would argue that data do not support that. Um, we, I could go through all the reasons why, but, but suffice it to say, that's why I voted no. If you look at the data that were presented to us on, Jan on June 28th, when you looked at the bivalent vaccine containing BA1, because we weren't presented the data with the current vaccine, because there weren't data at that point, you saw roughly a two-fold increase, or less than a two-fold increase, in neutralizing antibody titers, which is unlikely to be a clinically significant difference. And there were data, actually, that just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, suggesting, again, that, that this is unlikely to be significantly better than the current vaccine. I think it's a value. I think it's a value for the kind of groups that uh, Dr. Gowner and I just mentioned. Uh, I'm not sure um, that, that it's uh, necessarily something that everyone who's over 12 should get, um, because I think that we really should focus on those groups who are most likely to benefit, i.e. protected against severe illness. Well, you're, the other 19 members of that committee aren't here, Dr. Offit, but can you give us some insight into why they approved the booster? Well, I think it was clear that's what, what we were being asked to do. Uh, you know, you had people from the World Health Organization present who said that they think that this might be of benefit. Even the, F the people presenting for the FDA felt that this might be of benefit. But again, you know, you would like to see some data that support that before you agree to, you know, a, a vaccine that's going to be given to millions and probably tens of millions of people. I just do worry about that. I mean, I don't think this vaccine would be any less safe. I suspect it would be at least as good. I guess we'll find out. But I would really be surprised if this was dramatically better. And I, I do feel that it's being sold that way at some level, that this is going to be, because it contains BA4, BA5, this is going to be much better at protecting you against mild disease, much better at reducing transmission, that it's going to have an impact on, on, on the current pandemic. And I, I just worry that it's being oversold. Dr. Gounder, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate, we, we are not concerned about the safety of these updated booster vaccines. The question is, will they be an improvement? And they'll, at least based on the data thus far, they seem to be roughly equivalent to what we had already. The question is, is it worth it to spend the resources necessary to make these updates if there's no improvement when those resources could be better spent elsewhere and have more impact elsewhere? We got this email from Jan who asks, I've had two vaccinations and two boosters. Would I still be able to get the new booster, Dr. Offit? Um, yes, I think, you, you know, it's the, the way that the, uh, the, that uh, vote went and the way that the CDC recommended it is if you wait at least two months after your last uh, dose that you can get another booster. I think probably it would be more reasonable to wait four months. You can argue, though, does somebody um, who has already had four doses really need another dose? Again, I think that the goal is to try and prevent severe illness. I mean, what that additional dose will buy you is another, say, three, four months of protection against mild disease. But that just doesn't seem like, to me, a reasonable public health strategy. Well, schools are open for a new academic year across the country, but vaccination rates among children are low, especially for those under five. Only 8% of children under the age of five have received at least one dose of the vaccine. That's according to the CDC. Dr. Offit, why do you think those numbers are so low? 
Well, they're, they're lower and lower as you take, as you look at younger and younger age groups. And, you know, the 12 to 15-year-old was lower than the, say, 16 to 30-year-old. The 5 to 11-year-old was lower than the, the uh, 12 to 15-year-old. And now the less than 5-year-old is less than 10%. I think, I think people see young children as particularly vulnerable. And so, but the way that parents often interpret that is that, you know, they don't want to inject them with a biological that they don't necessarily understand. And they see their children as not those who are likely to die from this virus. It does worry me, though. I mean, if you had to ask answer the question, what group in the United States has the lowest vaccine rate? It's people under 18. And you're right, they're all going back to school. And there is some evidence, actually, David uh, Rubin at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia Policy Lab has some now evidence that, that you are starting to see because we have this sort of linked uh, um, uh, links to other children's hospitals, that there is starting to be somewhat of an increase in, in hospitalizations for for children as they go back to school with things like croup and, 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 and bronchiolitis, you know, which can be a consequence of this, uh, this respiratory infection. So I do, I do worry about children now going back to school who are clearly an under-vaccinated group. You're listening to part of our Vaccination Nation series on the 1A podcast. Remember, the fastest way to connect with us is through our text club. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the 1A.org. Let's get back to our latest conversation in our Vaccination Nation series. This is more than just an overreach or overstepping. He needs to apologize for that remark because there are people like me and my husband who are still wearing masks in a a county that's not well vaccinated. And the president needs to apologize for his remark. We also got this tweet from Elizabeth, quote, the pandemic is very much not over, not for my family, not for our city, and not for the hundreds of lives we're losing for no reason. This is preventable. This is fixable. It's unconscionable that we're being asked to make impossible choices. Now, Dr. Gounder, we've been talking about how people's attitudes towards COVID are changing And with many people being more comfortable out in the world while taking few, if any, COVID precautions, for people who are concerned and feel like they have very few options, what advice do you have for them about how to best protect themselves and the people they care about? Well, there are tools that we have available. So masking remains a highly effective tool. I was working in the hospital at Bellevue on the COVID wards all of 2020, never got COVID because I was wearing my N95 mask. And so I think it's important to remember that those N95 and KN95 masks are highly effective in in reducing your risk. That's something you have control over. Uh, But there are other tools as well. So testing, uh, using those at-home rapid tests, particularly before you're going to see other people indoors, is a way of reducing the risk if everybody tests negative in that setting. Uh, using tools like isolation. So if you're sick, don't go to work. If your child is sick, keep your child at home. Now, it's challenging to do that if you don't have paid sick leave or paid family medical leave where you're paid to stay home. And those are the kinds of uh, social safety nets that would allow us to move forward safely where people aren't having to choose between, say, spreading COVID versus their wages. Dr. Offit, anything to add? 
No, I, th I think you know it, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I, I sort of hear the pain in the in the in the caller's voice. Uh, you know, the the this virus is going to be with us. I think likely for the rest of my lifetime, my children's lifetime, and possibly their children's lifetimes. I mean, if you look at at the, the first two human coronaviruses that were identified in the early 1960s, both of which likely came from bats. Um, one came into the human population in the late 1700s, the other in the late 1800s. I think we're going to be dealing with this virus, certainly on a worldwide level, for a long time. And so the question is how to do that. How do you protect the most vulnerable populations moving forward? And I think that's going to be a, the challenge. I think, I think unfortunately, the way uh, President Biden's uh, message was heard was that we're, we're through with this. And we're, obviously, we're not. And we're not going to be through with it for a long time. The question is how to deal with it moving forward as things get better. We caught up with a White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. This was back in June. And here's what he had to say about the pandemic moving into a different phase. The reason why I think at the end of the day, these are decisions made best by local leaders are two reasons, really. One is they do understand their local communities much better. And we are a large and diverse country. And I think it's going to be the rare policy that is going to work equally well in Maine and Minnesota and Texas and, and everywhere else in between. Um, the second is, in my mind, about accountability. Um, at the end of the day, we're a democracy and local leaders are held accountable by their uh, by their constituents. You know, there are plenty of times when local leaders make decisions where I wish they'd make a different one. Um, but I think in our democracy, that is where that decision ultimately resides. Uh, Dr. Gallander, in January, the Supreme Court blocked the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, that's OSHA, from imposing vaccine mandates on companies with over 100 employees. And in April, a federal judge in Florida struck down mask mandates on planes and public transportation. When we talk about health policy, how much can the federal government do in its fight against the pandemic right now? Well, there are limitations, and most of the public health powers actually reside at the state and local level, not at the federal level. So much of the federal power to influence public health policy is really the power of the purse. How does it um, distribute funding to the states? What does it tie? What kind of requirements does it tie to that funding? We certainly see those kinds of requirements around data reporting, for example, uh, that the states have to report certain data when they receive certain funding from the federal government. But there are the, the federal government really isn't where those those public health powers reside. We got this email from Marie who says, my husband and I, both in our late 60s, continue to wear masks at the food store, are fully vaccinated with no underlying conditions. We want to minimize our risk, but I am suffering psychologically for continuing to not see my friends and family, some of whom are not up to date on vaccines and don't wear masks. There's been a concern that a surge in new cases might come again with the fall and winter months as people are, are pushed indoors for socializing and holidays. You know, for people like Marie who want to see people, but are also trying to minimize their risk of exposure, what should they start thinking through? What questions should they ask themselves to, to try to create an environment where they can connect with others, but still feel safe, Dr. Gounder? Well, there are some additional tools. So she mentioned masking that her friends won't mask. She can mask. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're wearing a high quality mask, an N95 or a KN95 mask, that will be highly protective for you, even if the people around you don't mask. Let's say your friends are giving you a really hard time about masking. Uh, what are some other options? Well, you could certainly um, try to socialize outdoors uh, where the risk is going to be minimal. You have essentially infinite ventilation. 
If you're socializing indoors, buy some HEPA filtration units, air filtration units for your home, invite them to your home. Uh, testing prior to getting together, buying some of those, and I know not everybody's gonna be able to afford to do this, but buying some of those rapid at-home COVID tests. If everybody tests negative um, before unmasking indoors, you can feel fairly confident that the risk is pretty low. It's not zero, but you've reduced your risk dramatically by doing that. We got this email from William who says, to help contextualize fear of long COVID, are there any other common diseases that have substantive long-term risks for the general population, but just aren't talked about? Dr. Offit, are there other common infectious diseases that have that kind of risk? Well, certainly when people look at long COVID and try and define it, one of the, the viruses they compare it to is influenza, because influenza also can cause longer term symptoms in, in terms of, you know, uh, say, say fatigue, headache, brain fog, and, and the like. So, so I would say the answer to that question is yes. I think sort of this uh, COVID has now caused us to really think about that more. So now you're seeing, for example, studies comparing people who have suffered uh, uh, COVID and now have long COVID as compared to those who suffered influenza. So I think the answer is yes. But I do think this is a unique virus. I, I uh, think that in, in comparison to other respiratory viruses, I know no other respiratory virus that does what this does. And I think for me, that sort of hit home with something called MIS-C, which is this multi-system inflammatory disease of children, where children, you know, between five and 13 years of age would come into our hospital having suffered a fairly trivial uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection the month before. And then they come in with, you know, with high fever, uh, a pneumonia, evidence of heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, kidney disease, um, because this virus has caused this sort of hyper-inflammatory response that is incredibly destructive. I, I've never seen that before. So, this is a unique virus in that sense. Dr. Gounder, the CDC says nearly one in five adults who've had COVID report symptoms of long COVID. What concerns does that raise for you about the long-term effects on individuals and on our health system? Well, that one in five number has been uh, debated. It really depends on your definition, how long symptoms go out to. You know, I would be much less concerned about somebody who has symptoms at three months, but by six months, they're back to baseline versus somebody who two years later still has symptoms. So those are very different uh, ways of, of parsing the data. But yes, I do think we need to be aware that there may be long-term consequences here and that some people may not be able to work. Some people may have long-term medical needs or may be disabled in the long-term. And do we have safety nets for that? Um, how will they qualify for those safety nets? So how do you make the appropriate diagnosis? And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is understanding how does COVID cause these different long-term issues? How do we make an appropriate diagnosis of that? Uh, and what is the prognosis? That's going to be really important in terms of preparing our healthcare system and planning for those kinds of safety nets. We got this email from Steve who says, I am 40, active and healthy, and currently recovering with my wife and son from our first cases of COVID. We're all up to date on all vaccinations and boosters, except for the latest booster. My wife and I got hit particularly hard by our cases, however. Four days of aches, congestion, cough, and a wicked sore throat. Can you talk about any research showing when symptoms are or are not severe, especially in the vaccinated? Dr. Offit, do, do we know why some people have a harder case of this illness, even when they're vaccinated? 
You know, we're an outbred population, and we all respond to vaccines differently. Um, we have different immune systems. Uh, some are more vigorous than others. Some have better innate immune systems than others where, you know, they're just unlikely to get uh, COVID anyway um, than, than another uh, person. So I think that's all sort of being studied now. We'll learn more. But, it, but for someone who's had, as, as this, uh, this writer has, had, say, three doses of the vaccine and a natural infection, as long as you survive your natural infection, you're in better shape in many ways, so-called hybrid immunity, where you have a broader, probably longer-lived uh, immunity than someone who wasn't naturally infected. But as Dr. Gander said earlier, you know, the, the, you never want to have to pay the price of natural infection, which could be hospitalization or ICU admission or death. Um, but if you happen to survive a natural infection, in some ways, you are better off. Well, according to the CDC, BA5 remains the dominant COVID variant at this moment. It accounts for approximately 85% of new cases. Dr. Gounder, do you anticipate any new variants in the near future? Oh, sure. Uh, viruses replicate, and when viruses replicate, they mutate, which means we have many, many, many variants in our future. That is just what's going to happen. Now, there are two, and I'd be curious to hear what Dr. Offit has to say, but there are two that I have my eye on, which are uh, Omicron subvariants. You have the uh, BA2752, uh, which we've seen in parts of Asia, for example. We do see it uh, at a low level here in the United States. And also the BA4.6 um, subvariant are both uh, subvariants of Omicron that I have my eye on. And what about you, Dr. Offit? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, this, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, is a single-stranded RNA virus, which means that when it reproduces itself, as Dr. Yonder says, it's not particularly faithful. So it, it creates these mutations that creates variants. It's very similar to, to influenza, another single-stranded uh, RNA virus. But then you have all other single-stranded RNA viruses like measles, which, you know, we've had a vaccine for measles since the early 1960s, and that virus has never mutated away from the vaccine. The same is true of the mumps vaccine or the rubella, German measles vaccine. So... Viruses are different. I mean, it's hard to predict. I certainly agree with Dr. Gounder that there are more variants in our future, um, and we'll learn as we go. What worries me, and it hasn't happened yet, is that a variant is created where even if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated, you still are at risk of severe disease, and that hasn't happened because the, the, the immunologically distinct region, so-called epitopes on SARS-CoV-2, um, from the, the original Wuhan strain to the current BA4, BA5 strain that are recognized by T cells, which are critical for protection against severe disease, have not dramatically changed. That's why you're still largely protected against severe disease, even by getting this vaccine that was generated against, you know, the original Wuhan strain. That was Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Panel. And Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at the New York University School of Medicine and Bellevue Hospital Center. She's also a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Offit, Dr. Gounder, as always, thank you so much for joining us. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. 